From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and my guest today is Tim Slade. Tim is an author, speaker, and freelance e-learning designer who has been recognized and awarded within our industry multiple times for his creative and innovative approach to instructional design. He's a regular on the conference circuit, an articulate superhero, articulate the authoring program, that is. He's the creator of the e-learning designers academy and the author of the title, which is the subject for today, the e-learning designers handbook, a practical guide to the e-learning development process for new e-learning designers. Tim, welcome to the Learning Circle. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I was excited when I saw the book. There are other books out there that attempt to help new designers get up and running, but some of them, as good as they are, I think they're still a little too hard. So I've been enjoying your book. I think it fills an important niche. If we're honest, the E in e-learning does not stand for easy. There's a tremendous amount that we have to learn when we get started, and it can be very intimidating. Tim, what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um so a couple things ex- inspired me to to write the book. Uh, as I mentioned in the book, you know, I fell into e-learning by accident. I used to catch shoplifters for a living, and then I got promoted into a role teaching other people how to catch shoplifters. And that's how I was introduced into the world of instructional design and e-learning. And I had to learn by figuring it out. Uh, you know, I didn't... I didn't know what instructional design was when I became an instructional designer. I didn't even think I knew I was an instructional designer. And one of the things I learned really early on in my career is that there's the theory of instructional design, but there's also the practical application. And I think to your point, there's a lot of other books out there, but they focus so much on theory and not how to actually get things done in the real world, like managing stakeholders or writing storyboards or all of the actual tasky stuff. The other thing that inspired me, this is, and this is when I really started thinking about the book. Um, several years ago, I, uh, I used to work as the director of global instructional design at a large technology company. And I managed a team of instructional designers and uh, none of them had any actual experience in instructional design or e-learning development. They were very similar to how, uh, uh, who I was, you know, years and years prior. And the first several months of my job leading this team was getting them up and running on the process of instructional design and specifically e-learning development. And after I finished that and I upskilled all these people, I realized that I had essentially created an outline for this book. And so, um, I took a few weeks off from work and I locked myself away in a hotel room and I wrote that book. So yeah, the the inspiration came from my own experiences, wanting to help others get all the information I wish I had when I first started, but, but also learning, um, having to upskill a team to to the e-learning design and development process that, that really, really helped me understand how to write a book on it. So it sounds like it was kind of an unlikely book that grew out of something else. 
And, you know, early on in that answer, when you talked about how you sort of fell into the industry, I think that captures the experience for many of us. You probably know the author, Cammie Bean. She wrote a book called The Accidental Designer. Mm -hmm. And it's really true. A lot of us sort of come into the back door. I I joke that I, I came in the back door when nobody was looking. And like you, I fell into it. It seemed almost by accident. But then we feel a little bit like we're left to our own devices. In my case, I was trying to absorb instructional design by osmosis for many, many years. I eventually went and I got a master's degree in instructional technologies. But I spent a good many years just learning on the job, learning as we go, which is a great way to learn as we know. Sure. Now, new instructional designers can feel a lot of pressure just to get going when they're handed their first project. So like you said about the theory versus the tasky stuff in your words, your book is rather balanced in that you address both the process, Mm -hmm. which is like the nuts and bolts side of things, what it takes to put training products together. But you also give attention to the principles of learning. You introduce us to figures like Malcolm Knowles, concepts like andragogy, or adult learning versus pedagogy. In your opinion, which do you think is more important for us to focus upon when we're just starting out? Is it the practical development stuff or those principles of learning? Well, I think the, you know, the interesting thing about the theory versus the practical application is that neither of them are effective individually. (laughs) They require each other. I mean, the theory is only as good as your ability to apply it. And the the practical aspects of design and development is only as good as your ability to apply the theory to it. And so as much as I uh, very much respect and honor the importance of um, understanding the theories, I think at the end of the day, you, you have to know how, how it actually applies in a practical setting. And I think for a lot of people who uh, go uh, to college and get a formal education in instructional design uh, or adult learning, uh, one of the things that they often struggle with when they come out of college is they've learned all these theories, but then they don't know how to actually you know, manage stakeholders or kick off a project or draft a storyboard or use an e-learning authoring tool. Uh, and so I, they're, they're, e- they're equally important and they play off of one another in really important ways. And so, you know, my background is, you know, all in the practical application. And I think, you know, the, the time at which I wrote this book, uh, to your point, I think it filled a gap that uh, a lot of people, at least in, in the book world, there wasn't a lot of information that taught you about the practical application of instructional design. And so, you know, the, the the practical application holds a special place in my heart, but I also recognize that it's only as good as your ability to also apply the theory. I like that answer. And not to sound theoretical, but it's kind of a constructivist approach where you learn yeah. as you do. It's in the trying and failing, learning as we go. It, it, and as, as I mentioned in the book, and I think it's important as instructional designers, when we're creating our content, we know that knowledge and behavior aren't mutually exclusive. And I think the same thing is true in our industry. Just because you know the theory doesn't mean you're going to be able to apply it. 
right. And in your book, you even diagram the path that it takes. And it's not a straight line. It's just like the Mm-mm. creative process itself. It's very circuitous. There's twists and turns and tangles. But that, in fact, is how we learn. It's a, a messy, nonlinear process. So this conversation we're having, it's actually very meta, you know, this conversation, but it's all very true about how we learn and how we become practitioners. Yeah. You also mentioned in that answer how there are a lot of sub-disciplines to being instructional designers or e-learning developers, whatever name you want to apply, but there's a host of people skills, management skills. You know, we face the terrifying prospect for some of us to produce a Gantt chart for the first time or maybe to kick off a meeting with a lot of important people in the room. There's all these things that coalesce into what we do. So I imagine that that had to be a a big part of what you wanted to do with your book, which was to sort of demystify and bring down the fear factor. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you really make a great point. Uh, and it's something I recognized and learned early on in my career is that to be an instructional designer or, you know, an e-learning developer or a learning experience designer, or whatever title you give yourself as, as to be a learning professional, uh, it, it's more than just design in theory it's when i say design i mean like instructional design theory not visual design but speaking of visual design uh being a good instructional designer learning professional requires us to not only know how to apply the theory but you also have to be a good writer you have to be a good communicator you have to be a good project manager you have to be a good visual designer uh you have to know technology you have to know how to use the e-learning authoring tool and then maybe you also have to know a little bit about user experience design and user interface design and then there's the LMS component and there's, uh, you know, evaluation and, and data analysis. I mean, there's a lot that goes into being uh, a well-rounded learning professional. And so nobody really prepares you for that when you enter the industry. And so my goal in the book was to help people understand specifically for the context of e-learning uh, all of the different disciplines that go into creating an effective e-learning multimedia experience. And I didn't even mention like audio narration and editing and video production. I mean, you could just keep going on and on and on, on all the things that we do uh, when we're creating something as simple as an e-learning course. Yes. Thanks for bringing up that side of it. I'm very much a media professional myself, as well as having been on the management side. But Mm -hmm. yes, this profession If you're in it long enough, it's going to round you out greatly. Yeah. Now, another thing I like about your book is that you're pretty candid. Mm -hmm. You're not shy and reserved in that you are willing to tell us what you really think about the state of the industry. I think it's fair to say that you would like to see us collectively raise our game and turn out consistently better products. And having said that, in your opinion, Tim, what makes for bad, and I'm I'm making air quotes around the word bad, but what makes for bad or suboptimal e-learning products? Yeah. Well, I mean, as I describe it in the book, right at the beginning of the book, I I lay out quite clearly that I think most e-learning sucks. (laughs) I think most e-learning that we create in corporate organizations is really quite awful. I'm guilty of it. And I think everybody in this industry would be lying if you didn't admit that you haven't created a really bad e-learning product in at some point in your career. And so, you know, those bad e-learning courses, those are the ones 
where, you know, if you were to really ask yourself deep down in your core, would you want to sit through that course? And, you know, oftentimes the answer is no. Um, I don't like taking those boring compliance courses any more than the next person. And, and so, you know, what makes bad e-learning it's, it's uh, when uh, it's focused on what, people need to know instead of what they need to do. It's when it's not the right solution for the performance issue you're trying to solve. Um, and when it's just focused on presenting information rather than, 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 you know, encouraging uh, behavior change. And so all of those things kind of, you know, getting those things right or, or addressing those issues in a proper way is, you know, what I define as fit for function e-learning. It means that you're designing something that is, you know, the right solution for the thing that you're trying to fix. Um, and I think too often in our, in our corporate organizations, we just, we create e-learning for all the wrong reasons because it can be created once uh, it can be delivered multiple people, multiple times in multiple locations. Those are all great benefits, but oftentimes it, it gets used for convenience rather than it being the actual thing. That's going to be the most effective way of addressing a performance issue. Exactly. It's kind of like the conversation of how we often trade our time when we're providing services versus creating a product where, you, you know, you make it once and it can serve the world over and over for years on end. Of course, the downside is that sometimes products are like a one size fits all solution. But back to that question, you've told us what the worser forms of e-learning are like. The corollary to that question would be what does good or optimal learning look like to you? Yeah. Well, I think um, going off of some of the things I just mentioned, I mean, uh, obviously you want it to be fit for function and you want it to be focused on what people need to do, not just what they need to know. Um, when I, you know, when I look at an e-learning course and I'm evaluating its quality and effectiveness, there's a couple different things that I look at. I, I look at obviously the instructional design quality the visual design, the user interface design. And I also look at it from a standpoint of visual communications. And one of the questions I love asking people is if you, if if we can all agree that those are the four things that go into creating a good e-learning course, it has to be instructionally sound. It needs to be visually pleasing. It needs to be easy to use. And it needs to use your slides to visualize the concepts. If we can agree that those are the four things that go into making a good e-learning course, the question I love asking people is, well, how would you order them in terms of importance? And most people say something along the lines of instructional design first, and then some combination of the four other items afterwards. And I actually like to flip it. I, I, I like to put instructional design last, not because I think instructional design is least important, uh, the instructional quality of a course is always the most important component. However, in an e-learning context, you know, e-learning is a form of multimedia, digital multimedia, uh, just like a video uh, or just like a website. And it's my belief that because it's a form of digital multimedia, uh, if it doesn't look good, if it's not easy to use, and if you're not using your slides to help your learners see what you're trying to say, quite literally see it, uh, what you're trying to say, then it doesn't matter how good your instructional design is. It doesn't matter how well of a needs analysis you did or uh, how well your learning objectives are written. If those other things aren't in alignment, then it will detract from the effectiveness of your e-learning course. So I, I, I view e-learning as a form of multimedia. And that's why as 
to be an e-learning designer, it requires us to be so much more than just instructional designers. Uh, it requires a, a whole full-fledged, you know, set of uh, practices that that go beyond instructional design, uh, the multimedia development, all of that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, in addition to all that, I mean, the easiest way to evaluate whether or not a course is good or not is whether or not it teaches somebody to do something at the end of it. If all it is is just giving information, then it's probably not that good. <laughs> I completely agree. And I like that answer. I like how you touch on aesthetics. It reminds me of a book you probably know. It's called Don't Make Me Think yeah. by Stephen Krug. It's yep. about usability. And I hope I'm paraphrasing him accurately, but he says that good design makes usability enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And what I appreciated about that book at the time when it first came out was that he put forth the idea at a time when usability was equated with just the most sterile websites. I mean, there was like kind of an overreaction that occurred during those bandwidth constrained days years ago. And that had some usability experts pointing the way to what were really just very antiseptic and boring and unenjoyable websites and products, mm -hmm. just plain HTML pages, no graphics whatsoever. But the truth is aesthetics matter, even the ornamental graphics, which help orient us or create a sense of place. It's kind of like the way chefs talk about how presentation is very important. Sure. You know, you can just plop a meal down in front of someone or you can pay attention to how things look when you serve it. And I think that concept applies here. We're putting a meal of sorts in front of people. Now, changing gears, you touch on development models. You get into some of the meaty subjects in this book, things that can actually be off-putting to new designers. And I'm talking about things like the development models. The industry is rife with terms like ADDI, the ADDI systems model, and SAM. And then there's newer kids on the block, things like LLAMA. And we hear an awful lot about Agile. The list goes on. They've got differences and they've got similarities. I want to know, how do you reconcile them all for the new developer? Because I think they've got a lot in common. So setting aside the terms and the differences, what are the main features of a solid development process? Yeah, I think uh, when we think about all the different development models, I think the, the big mistake or maybe the big misconception that exists is that Somehow, by picking the right development model, it's going to result in a more instructionally sound learning experience. And that's not the case at all. I mean, there's nothing inherent about Addy or Sam or even Llama that results in uh, a good learning product. Uh, and that's why I actually, you know, in the book, and I've, I've, I've said this in person at conferences and in other venues and other formats that I view Addy and Sam and Llama being more akin to a project management model than a instructional design model. And I, it really, a pet peeve of mine is how people call Addy an instructional design model. You could apply Addy to the construction of a house if you wanted to. <laughs> uh, there's nothing about it that's just purely for instructional design. So, right, right. Addy is just the universal design process. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so I, you know, I, every project is different. Every stakeholder, 
subject matter expert you're going to work with is different. Every organization is different. And so I don't put a whole lot of um, faith or effort into picking one model or another. There are times when I work with certain stakeholders who are familiar with e-learning development and the development process where we can be really iterative. And so in those moments, I'll do something that's more agile, more like Sam. And then there's other times where there's so many people involved and doing something very iterative and quick would really uh, uh, confuse uh, uh, the, the people that I'm working with. And so maybe a more linear approach is the best one to take. And so I think I think what's important for new designers and new developers is to understand when to use each model and use it intentionally. I, I think the the mistake that people make is that when they pick a model and then they follow it, you know, with some sort of dogma without really understanding why they're using it in the first place. Does that make sense? Yes. No, it does make sense. And um, I've also found that these models, you know, we get hung up on the names but before I knew some of the names of these other things, I'm talking years and years ago, I would just intuitively become, say, more agile if I needed to. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's unfair to characterize Addy as strictly a linear process. We can actually draw it as a circle. You know, we can continue to evaluate and reevaluate. I totally agree. But back then I found that if a given product was kind of complicated, I would just intuitively bring more of the players together early on. I'd have programmers and instructional designers, graphic and media developers at the table from the very, very beginning, just asking what's possible. And then from the early ideation, all through the formative stages, mm-hmm. uh, we would just iterate. Things would be iterative as a team, yep. building upon past ideas. And to me, that looks a bit more like the minimally viable product concept. But again, I didn't even know what Agile was at the time. So my point is that sometimes it's intuitive and we don't have to get hung up or pit these models against one another. We can recognize that, you know, it's a case by case thing, depending on what kind of product you're developing, you might take a different approach. I I totally agree. And I think, you know, um, without getting hung up on the names and whether one is like, I totally agree with you about ad. I mean, when people talk about Addy being linear, I always like, well, there's nothing stopping. Like there's no law that says you can't go back a step if you need to, you know, or (laughs) draw in a circle. It's, you know, so, uh, I, I think rather than getting hung up on names, I mean, at the end of the day, and this is true for no matter what you're doing in business or at work, the goal is to create the most effective thing in the most efficient way possible. I mean, that's that's what you're doing. And so whether that requires an agile, iterative approach uh, or linear, you know, you want to create the most effective thing in the most efficient way possible. Um, and, and that's why, yeah, the concept of creating a, an MVP or a minimally viable product um, the, the, at the end of the day, whether that's Addy or Sam or something else, I think that's what people should be striving for. I fully agree. Now, Tim, if I may, I'm going to pivot us to another one of those scary terms that can frighten new developers. And that is what's called the needs analysis or performance analysis. I wonder if you would just briefly demystify the term and the process for us. Yeah. You know, um, gosh, when I first fell into the industry, 
uh, first several years I worked in as an e-learning designer and instructional designer, I dreaded doing a needs analysis. Um, I thought it was complicated and time-consuming and cumbersome and not intuitive. And one of the things that I, I started noticing would happen with projects I would work on is I would start doing the project and I get maybe 50, 60% through the project. And through that time, you know, you're working on the project, you're gaining context that you didn't have before. You understand the content better. You understand your target audience better. You understand the issues you're trying to solve better. And what would happen is I'd get 60% done with the project and I would have this oh crap moment when I had it all of a sudden, I had all this context that helped me realize oh gosh, I wasn't creating the right thing to fix this issue. And so what, I, what I've realized is that a needs analysis, the goal of a needs analysis is just to help you move up that realization, <laughs> to have that moment of understanding before you start investing time and effort and money in building something. And so for me, you know, every needs analysis is different. The, the way you go about it, what you evaluate, how you analyze data, that's always contextual and that's always going to be different. But at the end of the day, in my experience, there are three questions that are always present in any needs analysis that you're doing. And that and those are, what are people doing on the job currently? What do you want them doing? And why aren't they doing it? So what is the current level of performance? What's the desired level of performance? And what's the reason that there's a delta between those two? And if you can answer those three questions with, you know, um, an acceptable amount of certainty, you will have at least much more context to identify whether or not you can fix it with training and maybe what training will fix it. And so uh, what I tell people about needs analyses and conducting one is you, you can spend all day looking at data and, and analyzing and crunching numbers. And sometimes that's a really important part of the process. But really, what you really need to be doing is you just need to be asking tons and tons and tons of questions. Why aren't people doing things? What's the cause of the issue? Uh, so that you can uh, have enough context that you don't have to just rely on your subject matter experts to tell you why something's not happening or what the solution is. And so needs analyses are much simpler than I think we make them out to be. Uh, and it's just asking, you know, lots of questions. Yes. And I think the benefit sometimes is that we learn that perhaps we don't need the training. Yeah. Maybe the Delta is the result of, say, a broken business process. Uh-huh. Maybe it's better to address what's broken in the business rather than train people on yep. really you're training them on broken processes uh maybe there's a disconnect between management and the worker bees and you know maybe we just need the job aid rather than uh training that will take six months to produce so i think that in the hands of a, an ethical and prudent designer you can kind of discern between those situations and make good recommendations that will benefit your customer so yeah I I was going to say, I think the the onus is on us as learning professionals to know when it is our job to talk our stakeholders out of training, because <laughs> they're always going to come with the solution. They want it to be training. And I think sometimes our job is to convince them why training isn't the answer. Yes, precisely. Now, I think it's accurate to say that the heart of a learning product lies in its objectives. 
and I mean the learning objectives or performance objectives, why is it so vital that we have defined learning objectives? Yeah. Well, I mean, besides using our learning objectives or performance objectives to know what should and should not be covered in a particular training object or a particular course. I think part of the reason that it's important is so that we are ensuring that we're focused on what people need to do, not what they need to know. One of the things I, and sometimes people need to know things, right? Obviously, but at the end of the day, the doing is the most important thing. And I often tell this story uh, when I, I, one of the things I, I tell new e-learning designers and developers is that our learners don't need to know anything. Stop using, like, stop asking that question. What do people need to know? They don't need to know anything. They need to do things. And it reminds me of, um, uh, several years ago, I worked on a project for military contractors and the, the purpose of the, the course was to help these military contractors to be able to identify improvised explosive devices in dirt roads when they were in war zones very important life and death training. And our subject matter experts were experts in explosives. And like subject matter experts do, they get overzealous about how important all of that knowledge is. And so they wanted to include a 30-minute introduction into the history of explosives and how it was used thousands of years ago for fireworks and all this really cool information. But what we had to explain to them was that, you know, that's great. But if I'm one of your military contractors and I'm in a war zone and I'm driving down a dirt road and I see a bump in the road a hundred yards ahead of me and I'm wondering, gosh, is that going to be the thing that kills me? Well, in that moment, I really don't care about the history of explosives. That's not going to save my life. And in fact, if we would have included that information in the course, by the time they got through it, you know, learners might've been disengaged and never got the information that they needed and the skills that they needed to save their lives. And so I think our learning objectives, one of the, one of the mistakes and fallacies that a lot of learning uh, professionals make and instructional designers make is that they think the learning objectives are for the learners. They're really for us as instructional designers to put up guardrails on what it is we're covering and how we're, we're making it based in, in performance. And so um, learning objectives are incredibly important to, to, to keep us aligned with whatever that North star is for our training content. Yes. I like the term guardrails and viewed from a project management standpoint, it also helps us to define the scope so that we're not going out of scope. Mm -hmm. You know, projects can get expensive when we're, yep. you know, just deviating from the, like the, say you would were to deviate from the blueprint for a house. If we just start building mm -hmm. all these other extra rooms for no reason that no one wanted, things are going to go off the rails, right? We're going to be over budget yeah. and we're, we're not creating the, the thing that we wanted to begin with. Yep. The other thing that I think about taking it from the learner's perspective yep. is that we could be asking learners to strain, to absorb a lot of extraneous content, right? Stuff that they're never going to get tested on. And that's why a lot of designers will devise the assessment first and that's another way to help control the scope of the learning. But yeah, again, again, from that project standpoint, it was always important for me to make sure we had defined objectives. Now, Tim, as we wind down here, take us through the concept of retention, because you covered that a bit in your book. Often our learning is structured like an event, 
I mean, it's actually, it's like a hot dog eating contest where we're just going to uh, devour all of this stuff in one sitting yeah. as opposed to natural learning, which is really, it's really like a journey, right? We kind of take things a step at a time, whatever analogy you want to use. We, we just don't want learners to be drinking from the fire hose, right? We want to avoid that kind of overload effect. But Tim, uh, in your words, what does e-learning that's designed for retention look like? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think the one another one of my pet peeves that I've developed over the years is that we oftentimes conflate training and learning. And training and learning are two very different things. Training is a thing that happens. Training events happen. People attend a workshop. People watch an e-learning course or watch a video or read a job aid. Those are training events. And learning is the long-term result of those training events. And I think the mistake that we make is we create these one-and-done training events expecting learning to come from them. And so, and that's not to say that learning doesn't happen from a training event, but what happens is when you do, you know, a singular training event, you have people go through an annual compliance course once or whatever the case might be, uh, you know, people remember that information for that moment. And then it's never applied. It's never reiterated, uh, or repeated, uh, and then the forgetting curve sets in and people lose that information. And so part of the reason, even though my book is focused so much on e-learning design and development, I try to present it in the context and the important, and the importance of creating blended learning and that e-learning isn't just you know, the only thing that can be used. I, another pet peeve of mine is when you start a project and somebody says, should this be an e-learning course or an instructor-led training, or should it be a job aid and a how or a how-to video? And my response is always like, why does it have to be one thing or another? It's not a binary choice. Uh, we should be creating blended learning, fit for function blended learning that supports the learning process over time so that we can help increase retention, increase uh, mastery of skills beyond just a singular training event, uh, or, you know, a massive e-learning course. Um, and, and so I, you know, when we're thinking about cognitive load and retention, I think we have to go beyond just one and done, uh, trainings and start looking at how do we actually support learning over time? That's a great answer. And, you know, as evidenced by the fact that you wrote a book, right? It's a different modality from e-learning. It's not e-learning. There's nothing to click on that I've, I've found in yeah. your book. It's just a different <laughs> medium that requires a different type of yeah. focus. But to your point, we ought to take advantage of the blend that's at our disposal and we ought to use it mm -hmm. because we can battle the forgetting curve and we can increase performance. Now, Tim, I felt like I was almost pulling things out at random from your book, but I, I did want to pull highlights from it and talk about it. I hope I did some justice today. Sure. Of course, there's much more in there for the readers. Now, my guest today has been Tim Slade, and the name of this book is The E-Learning Designer's Handbook. We only scratched the surface, but I hope we did whet the appetite. Tim, tell us where we can find it, please. Yeah, people can get the book um, at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Just type in e-learning and it'll be the first thing that pops up. Yes, as I like to say, grab it from an Amazon near you. That's fantastic. Tim, I so appreciate your time today. Thank you for being a guest on The Learning Circle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you again. 
Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.